Good morning, Sterling. Uh, thank you very much. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. I'm one of the elders on staff, and it is a wonderful privilege to be able to bring to you God's Word. Uh, we find ourselves in the book of Mark, so if you are visiting us for the first time this morning or haven't been back in a while, it's great to have you with us. Uh, but we've been going through a series through the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 8, verses 31, to chapter 9, verse 1 today. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there in the meantime. Uh, and the series has been wonderful. At least I've, I've, I've seriously enjoyed it. It's been a series that we have called A Journey with Jesus. And there's two folds to that that we're trying to emphasize and focus on. Uh, the first is that we wanted to know who is this Jesus. We wanted to fall madly in love with him. We wanted to know him better and better and better. And I hope for you the Gospel of Mark has been a series that has shown you again, maybe renewing or showing you for the first time parts of Christ's character that you can just cling your faith to, that you're able to hold on to, be in awe of. Um, and the Gospel of Mark has just been full of stuff about Jesus over and over again. But there's another element to it as well, and that is an element which requires us to follow him. It says a journey with him. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And so there's been two elements of this. Who is Christ and how do we respond in light of who this Jesus is? And, and Mark's been challenging in that sense. Well, I think today's text probably encapsulates both of those wonderfully. It talks about who Christ is, what he has come to do, but also it doesn't leave us to just ponder on his character without a response. And so have that in mind because there's two elements to this, who he is and what we ought to do with this information and respond to it. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, as I said, verses 31 to chapter 9, verse 1. It's not that long as it sounds. Uh, keep this, yeah, let's read. We'll be in, uh, we'll I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It goes as follows. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, I just want to pause there, calling the crowd with him to his disciples. This, what he's about to say next is not just for the 12. This is something that all who are going to follow him need to uh, respond to this and do what he's about to say. So this is for you and me this morning. He says, if anyone would come, uh, would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of uh, God after it has come with power. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given to us so plainly what we ought to do in light of who you are. And I ask this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would move in power. Lord, that you would take our hearts that are so often calloused and hard and and may they be softened by the gospel, and may you be able to instill in it, in our hearts, a fire for you, a, a life, a, a desire to live for the glory of Christ in light of this wonderful, wonderful Jesus. So give us eyes to see, we pray. May we see Jesus and what he has done and be in awe of him. Amen. There's something important that has taken place just before this text that we have read this morning for those of you who weren't here last week. What we saw is that Peter has had it revealed to him by God the Father who Jesus is. And Jesus asks Peter plainly, Peter, who do you say I am? And as we see in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 verse 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God. He answers that correctly. And now this is a massive moment in the gospel of Mark because so far the disciples have rather been hard-headed and hard-hearted. 
They haven't quite seen the, the, the signs behind the miracles. They haven't quite heard what Jesus has said as he has preached. We have seen over and over again that Jesus is over creation. He's over the demonic. He's over sin. He's over disease. He's over death. They've seen it displayed powerfully through miracles. They've had the privilege of hearing Christ preach over and over again, yet we always are left gobsmacked by how slow they are to get it. Jesus in this chapter will say, oh, do you not have ears to hear? Do you not have eyes to see? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? And out of nowhere, we see that Peter gets it. He starts to see. It's, it's probably come through the preaching of Christ and the, the revelation of the Father through that, that this is Jesus. He is the Son of the living God, that He is the Messiah. And so what we see in the Gospel of Mark from now on, there's a change of emphasis that takes place. In the Gospel of Mark so far, what we have seen is that Mark has tried to emphasize the glory of the Savior, a glory of this Jesus, the Son of God, and we've seen that displayed in, in massive miracles. And now there's a shifting, a seismic shift that takes place in the Gospel of Mark where the emphasis is different. We still see that Jesus is great and glorious, but the emphasis is on rather what this Messiah, that they now understand who he is, has come to do. Because the traditional understanding of the day for a Jew of who the Messiah was was vastly different to what Christ had come to do. A Jew had understood that the Messiah was going to be someone who was going to come in power, which we've seen so far. But he's going to come in power and he was going to liberate the nation of Israel from the oppression of Rome who was over them. And he was going to reestablish Israel as the powerhouse of the day, the world powerhouse of the day. This is very different to what Jesus had come to do. So now that they get he's the Messiah, he's got a lot of rewiring that needs to, he needs to do in the disciples' brains and heart for them to understand what he has come to do. And we see what he has come to do in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. It says this, And he began to teach them. All of a sudden, his teaching shifts. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he says this plainly. He says this plainly. This is a shocking revelation and proclamation by Christ to any Jew that's hearing this. You've got to understand, again, that tradition, that this is vastly different to what they had thought. And that is encapsulated in Peter's response. He is horrified by what Christ hears, to a point that he thinks he needs to take Jesus around the corner and give him a talking to, rebukes him. Come on, Jesus, snap out of this negative talking. This is not the way the Messiah is meant to think. We're not going to conquer Rome with this kind of thinking. This pessimism and this negative talk isn't going to be able to amass the crowds that we are going to need to fight against Rome. Snap out of it. Get your head back in the game. Shame poor Peter. You can kind of have some sympathy for Peter if you understand his tradition that has been wired in him over and over again. He's not trying to be malicious or trying to be hard on Christ per se. There's some pure motives behind what he's trying to do. He's earnest in his motives, but just because you're earnest and just because you have some zeal and just because you think you're right doesn't make you right. I think some of us need to hear that. And Jesus comes along and he returns the rebuke in favor, doesn't he? Takes him around and says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Jesus sees past the earnestness of what Peter is trying to say, and he notices that there's probably some uh, of Satan's activity behind those words that are trying to derail the God-given plan for salvation of mankind, and Jesus does not fall into that trap at all. But may I also say that I feel like many of us might sometimes be like Peter. There are those in the world who don't like the idea of a suffering Messiah. It's too gruesome. It's, it's barbaric. It's rather primitive. Why does Jesus' blood need to be shed to save me? That just seems rather 
rather old age. It doesn't seem right. Why did God have to do that? But do you notice that Jesus does not try to justify a Savior that needs to suffer? He just simply states that it is true. And for many of us as well, we don't need to try to give an apologetic behind the reason why it's like this. We just need to affirm that the way of the cross is the will of God. Jesus says something amazing here in the text. He says in verse 31 again, he says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Why must the Son of Man must suffer? He says he must suffer many things and he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed and, and he, he must rise again on the third day. He, he must do it. Why must he do it? Was it because that Jesus had perceived that the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests didn't like what he was doing, and that their influence and their political prowess was too great for him, that he had no choice, that he was just going to suffer, and therefore he must? Well, that's simply not the case. We've seen that Jesus is the over-creation and the demonic. These wet paper bags of called the Pharisees couldn't do anything unless Jesus allowed them to do it. He says in the Gospel of John, I lay down my life. Nobody takes it down from me, and I will take it up again. It's certainly not the case that he must suffer because they wanted it to happen. He only allows them to do his will. But on top of that, well, is Jesus must Jesus suffer because he's here to give us an example of suffering? Well, there's some truth to the fact that as we look to the suffering of Christ, that we can learn how to do it too. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, he tells a great example of how we can suffer, especially when we are suffering unjustly, we can imitate Christ. But friends, it's not primary that Christ has come just to give us an example. He didn't leave the glories of heaven to suffer just so that we might know how to suffer. There's a greater reason and importance behind the suffering of Jesus. So why did Jesus have to suffer? Why must he suffer? Why must he be killed? Why must he be rejected and rise again on the third day? Well, in order for us to understand this, we need to understand the fall of man. And what we see is that God created the, the heavens and the earth. And when he did so, he said it was very good, and then he, he's good, and then when he created man, he said it was very good. And he gave Adam and Eve, he gave them one rule. And the one thing about giving one rule is we like to break those one rules, don't we? Given it's our hu human tendency is we get rules to break it. And, and so God gave them one rule, and they, yet they went and they broke that rule. And just like it is uh, not right or unjust for a judge to look over a criminal offense and not to punish it, so in the same way it is unjust for a holy God to look over an offense and not punish it. And the punishment for our sins, as we see in Romans 6 verses 23, the wages of sin is death. The punishment that we deserve is death because of our rebellion toward God and breaking His commandments. This rule, is, this punishment is not something in which we can overcome through mastering righteousness. This is not something that we can overcome by doing good works and, and being kind to others and, and doing those kinds of things. Our good works aren't good enough to make up for the sin of our past, to, to pay for the sin that we have done. Our good works just can't do it. We see that in, in Isaiah 6, uh, um, 64 verse Six, it says, all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Even the very best that you can give before a holy God is like a polluted garment before him. And unfortunately for all of us, we find ourselves all in the same boat. We see in Romans 3 verse 23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All are deserved of this punishment. But though God might have kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he didn't leave them with any hope. He left them with a promise. He left them with a promise that one day he was going to send a savior who was going to come and pay for this and who was going to crush the head 
of the serpent. And, and in that waiting period, what we see is God puts into place sacrifices where those who are waiting for this ultimate sacrifice to come, they would sacrifice an innocent lamb. And through the shedding of that innocent lamb's blood, the wrath of God was held back as they repented of their sins and waited in faith for the ultimate sacrifice that was going to come. And here within lies the beauty of God's perfect plan that he himself would provide the sacrifice that would atone for the sins of the world. But it couldn't just be anyone who was going to be the sacrifice. Why? Because every single one of us sitting in this room and everyone who has ever lived deserved that punishment. We all deserve the punishments. We can't take the punishment for someone else when we ourselves deserve that punishment. So this had to be someone who did not deserve the punishment. That person needed to be perfect. So God in his wisdom and in his grace and his mercy would send his own son to become and be born of the Virgin Mary, which we'll celebrate in a couple of weeks' time. He would live the perfect life that we could not live, live the life that would fulfill the law, and he would become perfect and also become the right sacrifice for you and me on the cross. He himself would become the Lamb of God whose blood would be shed to take away the sins of the world perfectly. And as Jesus died on the cross, that our sin would be laid upon him and the wrath of God would be poured out on him with a fullness of wrath that we deserved. And as it was born on him, he would die the death you and I deserve to die. And three days later, he would rise again. And the glory of this is that he, as he rised again, it proved that the sacrifice that he had made was sufficient. It was worthy. God accepted it for all those who would believe. This is the wonder of the gospel. And it's 2 Corinthians 5 verses 21 says this, And God made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for, the, for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why must Jesus suffer? Why must he be killed in order to atone for the sins of the world? Without the shedding of blood, there cannot be forgiveness, says Hebrews 9 verses 22. Without the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, there would be no satisfaction for the wrath of God, for the breaking of his holy law. Why must he suffer? He must suffer to reconcile us and make an payment for our sins. Why must he suffer? So that he could be the recipient of God's wrath and we the mercy and grace of God. Why must he suffer? Because without his suffering, our sins would not have been paid for and we would le be left with an impending judgment without hope. Why must he suffer? So that our offenses might be forgiven and we would be made just as if we had never sinned. But my friends, I want to say this is not given to us automatically. We don't gain this blessing, this, this, this free gift automatically, but rather as we see in Scripture, this needs to be something that we make personal through faith. This doesn't come to you automatically because your parents were once Christian. As Mark said last week, we can't ride in on the coattails of our parents. This doesn't come automatically because you live in a Christian country and therefore you're just Christian. No, this is something that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You need to see with clarity. You need to see, like Peter did, that he is the Son of God, that he's the, but also you need to see that he is the Savior of the world. That Jesus is not only God himself, but also the one who has paid for your sins. And if you see that with clarity and repent from your sins, the gospel says you will be saved. That all it is, all to obtain this free gift is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But what you gain, friends, if you do that and if you have done that, what you gain is not just salvation into eternity. What you gain is not just freedom from an eternal hell. What you gain in these moments is you gain God. 
You see, the, the beauty of the sacrifice of God is He would reconcile us with Him. That we would know Him and enjoy Him and delight in Him. But our standing before God has radically shifted. As we see in Romans 5 verse 10, we see that we were once His enemies. And later in Romans 8 verse 23, we see that actually now we've been adopted as sons and daughters. As we have spoken about this morning, we have a Father in whom we're able to enjoy. We can approach the throne of glory through a way that Christ has made permanent and open for us always into the fullness of God's presence. We get to delight in a Father. We get to experience this love, this experiential knowledge, not just a knowledge, but an experiential knowledge of the fullness of His love. It's, it's full width, it's height, it's depth, it's length. We experience it all. We get to come and, and delight in His presence with the fullness of joy as we've sung this morning. We get to come alongside Him and, and have the Holy Spirit dwell within us who becomes our, our compassion and our guide, our teacher and our comforter. In Him we find strength, hope and joy and love. There is a peace that surpasses all understanding. But this is given to us through Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel. And we need to have that as mind as we consider following Jesus. As we consider following Jesus, we need to have this in mind, this beauty of the gospel that we've only but just scraped the surface of this morning. We need to let the gospel soften our hearts to the wonder of it. We need to let our eyes be opened yet again to this gospel that I know that you have heard over and over before that you would be captivated by the extent of God's love for you, that you would know this presence of Christ and let it be a satisfying presence to your soul, that you would come along and you would feast on Him and feast on Jesus, enjoy Him and let Him be the nutrients to your soul. Let, let Him be the one that sustains you and gives you everything. This is what we are called to do and we need to do it. We need to be like the blind man in this previous couple of sermons that we saw that suddenly sees with clarity. It sees again with clarity the wonder of this gospel. My friends, if we do not remind ourselves of this wonder of this gospel, what are we going to do when we hear the command of Christ, as we've seen in this text, is we're going to be like Peter. We're going to take Pete, Jesus around the corner and want him to give him a scolding because how dare he ask us of such things. If we don't be blown away by this beauty of what he has done, the call of Christ to lay down your life, to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, is going to seem too extreme and needs to flow from a heart that is captivated with the love of Christ. It needs to flow from his heart. It cannot just be a head knowledge. And Christian, I'm talking to us this morning. The head knowledge of the gospel just hardens our hearts. And, and it has to flow from the heart, not the head. I was struck by a passage this, this last couple of weeks. I've been, part of my reading plan was through 2 Kings. And um, in 2 Kings 17, we see an event that takes place. It's a big, big event that happened. The Syrian army comes and wipes out the northern kingdom for just a big, background after Solomon becomes king he dies there's a splitting of the kingdom of Israel into two parts northern kingdom and southern kingdom and the northern kingdom never have any good kings they never serve God the southern kingdom have a, a few but regardless of how often God sent prophets over and over and over again to the northern kingdom to tell them to return to him, come back to him, listen to him, they never ever do so. And, and so God, uh, in his sovereignty, allows the Syrians to come and destroy the northern kingdom. And they're wiped out in war, and some are taken into captivity, and really the, the weak of the weak are left behind. But the way the Syrian army made sure that a nation were never able to somehow rise up against them was what they would do is they would take other nations that they had captured and they would send them to come and live in a new nation. And in doing so, you would have multiple nationalities coming along, living amongst each other, getting married, having children, and all of a sudden that one nation that had one identity has multiple. 
and they lose any uh, desire to rise up against Assyria. It was very clever. And so the Syrian, army do, uh, the Syrian king does is he sends a whole bunch of people in. And they start worshipping their own gods. And God sees this and gets very angry. And this caught my attention in early hours of the morning. He sends lions to eat them. That woke me up. And, and, and the Syrian king realizes what is happening. Is, that is God's judgment on the people. And so he sends back a Levite priest to come and preach God's word. And he preaches God's word, and, and, and the people hear the word of God, the law of God being preached and proclaimed. And what it says next struck me, uh, struck, struck my heart. It says this in 2 Kings 17, verse 33. It says, And so they feared the Lord. What? They feared the Lord. Oh, but hear this. But also served their gods. And after a manner of the nations from among them, who they had been carried away. And I'm struck by this because I wonder how often we sit in church and we hear the word of God preached and we fear the Lord. But in our hearts, that we continue on serving other, other idols. And our conduct is like that of the other nations. And I say that because we need to allow the gospel yet again to captivate our hearts that we don't just allow what Christ is saying to us this morning and in other times as well, to sit in a head knowledge, but one that is captivated in our hearts. And if we are going to achieve the command of Christ this morning to pick up our crosses, to deny ourselves and pick up our crosses and follow him, we need our hearts to be captivated with this gospel, not our heads. We need to let our hearts feast on him, to delight in him, to joy in him, it is only the heart that does that will be able to do this. If you are not feasting on, on Christ, the scraps of the world are going to seem too pleasurable to let go. But if you are feasting on this Jesus, you will see them for what they are, just scraps, and you'll carry on delighting in the God who truly, truly will satisfy you. And I think we need to be careful as we consider this core one to come and delight in Jesus, to enjoy him, to experience the peace that surpasses all understanding, to come and, and really enjoy the love of God that he has for us, and the call on this side to, to come and deny ourselves, pick up our crosses and follow him. We need to, I want to caution us here this morning to assume that these are two different commands. I, I, and at least in my heart and in my mind, what I try to do is I try to separate these two. Here is joy, and on this side, I start to picture that actually what God is asking of me is to live a life that is gloomy and glum and joyless. Oh, there's so much suffering here. That's all. Oh, that's tough. I'd rather enjoy this. But friends, I want you to see in this text that Jesus does not separate these two. But rather, these are one and of the same command. These are closely connected to each other. Look, look at verse 34. What does he say? If anyone would come after me, if anyone would enjoy me, if you want to be satisfied, if you want to experience what a fullness of love is, if you want to have me, if you want to gain me and all the joy that comes with that, what do you need to do? Oh, you need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross and you'll follow me. These two are closely linked to each other. And we must not assume that these two are far from one another. The more you deny yourself and let go of your own desires and your own wants and your own will and start to live in the will of God, the more you start to gain that peace that we have been talking about. The more you are willing to trust him with your hopes, your new dreams, and, and to lay those aside for the glory of Christ and, and come and grip onto him, the more you'll find purpose and life. It's, it's in here when you come, as we've been talking this morning, and lay your burdens at his feet. This is not only just laying the good things, but the things that are struggling in your life. Do you find the peace that surpasses understanding? Do you find a hope that is secure in the midst of uns uncertainty? Do you find that your faith is purified and your faith is stable? It is in letting these things go do you gain the joy of Christ. Not separate. 
It is in here that we have a quickening of our salvation, a clarity of our purpose. That's what we need to do. Do you want to gain Jesus this morning? The call is to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. But what does that mean? Well, firstly, let's look at deny yourself. The call of the Christian is to deny oneself. Is self-denial. Man, that is vastly different to the message of the world, isn't it? Postmodernism preaches to us a vastly different gospel. It says that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Just live out your truth. You have some emotions in you. You have some desires in you. Go and get what makes you happy. Don't let anything stop you from fulfilling what makes you happy, regardless of the consequences. Just go and do it. Live your life now, YOLO. Go and live it now. But what Christ says is vastly opposite to that. He says, go and deny yourself. If we are to gain Christ and gain him in his fullness, what needs to happen, says Jesus, he stipulates that what we need to do is that we need to shift the center of gravity from our lives, from doing what we want to living out the will of God. That we are able to say in our hearts, no to things that we want in order to achieve and do the will of God when they oppose each other. So I've got to ask you this morning, how are you doing with that? How, how open-handed is your life with Jesus? Is he able to change your plans? Is he able to come along and say, hey, I want you to change your career in order that you might serve the gospel more? Is he able to tell you to stay in a city and not move to another one or move to another one and not stay in one? Is he able to change your plans for retirement so that you might be able to serve his kingdom more? Is he able to tell you to stop doing a certain hobby, not because the hobby is sinful, but rather because it's using up all your time and not able to run the race that Christ has called you to? Is he able to do that? And just in case we think that Jesus is, is being a little dramatic and overemphasizing this a bit much, he goes and reinforces that with the next statement, doesn't he? He goes and says to us that we need to not only deny ourselves, but he goes and intensifies it by saying we need to pick up our crosses. He, he gives the, the imagery of a death march, of carrying the cross beam that you would have to carry off to your own crucifixion. That he goes and says, well, are you willing to deny yourself to a point that you would give up your own life? Now, that might seem like a mute uh, question to ask in, in uh, South Africa, at least in today's age. Are you willing to lay down your life? But you've got to remember who, who Mark is writing to. He's more likely writing to a Roman uh, community who are living under a persecution of Nero. The church has been persecuted like never before. Christians are being thrown into a Colosseum and being murdered and killed for entertainment. They are being fed to wild animals. They are being dipped alive into boiling tar, taken out, set alight, so that they might light up the roads of Rome as torches. If this wasn't a mute question or this was a reality for the people that Mark was writing to. And, and even on our own continent, uh, we don't have him here today, but we normally have a cameraman at the back who, who, who is from Africa, who will, if you have a conversation with Z, and he will, he will tell you from his homeland how, how this is a reality, how Boko Haram is killing Christians where he is from. And so while this might not be something that we necessarily will face anytime soon, or maybe we will, but we won't have to consider this question in reality. It's still a question we need to ask ourselves. Friends, are you willing to lay down your life for Jesus? If you had to give your life up for Christ, would you do so? Jesus says, if you are to follow him, we ought to try that. And I, and I think, maybe it's an unfair question, but I think Christ poses the question, so I'll ask it anyway. But I think we find the answer to this question in our everyday lives. Maybe in our hearts we've gone, yes, I would. I think every Christian would hope that they would get to that point, that they would do so. 
but maybe the question and the answer to that question is found in our hearts. We say that we are willing to do it, but are we really? I'm willing to lay down my life, but we're not necessarily willing to share our faith with our friends because we're too scared of what they might say. I'm willing to lay down my life, but I'm too, too busy to be able to do, spend some time in prayer and to wake up and, and read my Bible. I'm willing to lay down my life, but we're not willing to take a couple of hours to serve the Lord a month at our ch own local church. Jesus says, if you want to gain me, oh, come, lay down your life, give it all, and you will do so. And, and may I say that this question of asking whether or not we would lay down our lives is, not a, is something that we will only have to answer at some point. But it is something that we have to do on a daily basis. We see this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. It's an intentional action. Today, I'm willing to die for Christ. Today, I'm going to deny myself. Today, I choose to not follow what I want. Today, I'm going to follow what Christ wants. It's an intentional action. Something we have to choose. It doesn't come haphazardly to most. And now, <laughs> that, that might sound very hard, but again, I want to quote that for you in that you gain Christ. You get to enjoy him more than you ever are enjoying him now if you would do so. But Jesus, if, that is, if, that, if gaining Jesus is the positive motivation to do that, <laughs> we're about to move into one that maybe is a little bit more negative. Jesus gives some negative motivations just in case you're still not convinced that this is something you ought to do with your life. And let's read verses 35 to 38. Jesus says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father uh, in the glory of his father with his early angels. And the, the next uh, point that I've uh, labeled down here as motivations, I've called it kingdom mathematics. Jesus just speaks to us rather simply. He says, well, maybe that idea of laying down your life isn't something that's attractive to you. That's not what you want to do. You're going to keep your life. You're going to gain it. Well, Jesus says in kingdom mathematics, if you save your temporal life now, you lose your eternal life. It's, it's just logic to gain your life here and lose your eternal life. That makes no sense. A greater gain is to lose your life now and gain eternal life. That's what you ought to do. Simple kingdom mathematics. Or maybe you're going, hey, I, I want him to live my life to the, my full potential, live my life now, to do what I want to do with my life, not necessarily what God has called me to do, and, and I'm going to do that for what I can gain. And he goes, well, maybe you could gain the whole world, and you won't gain the whole world, but just say you could. If you would gain the whole world, but yet lose your soul, in actual fact, have you gained anything? Have you gained anything? Kingdom Mathematics says you don't. And so Jesus puts it down to say, hey, follow me. It's far greater gain. You gain me, you gain your life. Do this. The next point I have labeled vindication, and maybe I've tried to make this a little bit more positive, but here in, in, in verse 38 is probably the, the scariest of the lot when Jesus says that if we are ashamed of him, he would be ashamed of us and he, and he, when he uh, returns. And there's a grave danger that on this side of the grave that we could be ashamed of Christ and when he returns in judgment that he would be ashamed of us. But I, I think what this proves to us is something positive for us. We can look at this in a positive way in that if we could lay down our lives and not be ashamed of Jesus, that when he returns in his fullness of glory, that all those who have mocked and ridiculed us because of our faith all those who have rejected us or, or, or rejected the gospel that we have preached and said, hey, you're a little crazy. That as, as we stand before the glory of God, as we stand before the glory of our Jesus, who is now judge, would there not be a great sense of vindication? We'd be realized that we have not been put to shame, that actually now our hearts would not be beaming with, oh, I wish I did more, would be beaming with pride in our Savior who stands before us. 
And so the call of Christ here is to lay oneself down and pick up Jesus. Come to him, pick up our crosses and, and come and gain him. And we've got, go, we got some communion this morning, so I'm going to ask if the, if the worship team wouldn't mind uh, coming forward. We've got some communion this morning. And as we come around the communion table, we're going to be reminded of a number of things. And the first is, though we have been called to do this ourselves, Christ himself has done what he has asked us to do. In, in actual fact, we can't really compare the two. Jesus would leave the glories of heaven, become man, the, this glorious God would become man so that we might be saved. And as we do this and we, as we consider that he is calling us to do this and as we hold these elements and there, there might be a fear of what would happen if you had to actually do this. That we would be reminded that as we are called to follow this Jesus, what we do is we don't simply do it alone. That this call to pick up your cross and deny yourself is not something that you would ever be left alone in. Why? Because on the cross, as Jesus picked up his cross and died for you, he would shout the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that God the Father would turn the, his face away from the Son so that he would never turn his face away from you. And so as you hold these elements, may they stir something in your heart. May you feast on Christ. I know we've got something very small today, but may you let your heart delight again in the gospel of Jesus. May you be in awe and wonder of what he has done for you. Let your heart be softened to him. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much for the gospel. I thank you so much for a suffering Jesus that would leave the glories of heaven and come and lay down his life for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would be willing to do so, that you would bear the wrath of the Father so that we would not have to, that out of a, a deep love for us that you would lay down your life for us. And I pray for everyone here this, um, this morning that as we partake of these elements that you would stir our hearts toward the gospel, that we would be reminded of this great love for us, that we would know that Christ loves us and we could love him. May you propel us forward, Lord, to more of you. May you pry open our hands to the things that we hold dear and, and help us to latch them onto you. May you give us the strength and the energy as we partake in this to lay down our lives and pick up our cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you come forward and grab some elements and, and hold on to them and we will eat and drink together.
If you have your elements with you, let us eat and drink together. We thank you so much for this wonderful physical reminder, Lord, of what you've done. That we get to enjoy and delight in your presence we get to have Christ in his fullness. Would you move us toward you? Would you do a work in our hearts? But through the power of your spirit, would you soften our hearts toward this wonderful Jesus? And may we love him and pursue after him with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got one more song to end off with. It's part of our worship and response. Uh, this, uh, this morning. So would you mind standing with me as we close out the service? How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountains I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven spoke your name into the night and through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written Jesus Christ my living hope Who could imagine so great a mercy what heart could fathom such boundless peace the God of ages stepped down from glory to has spoken I am forgiven the King of Kings calls me his own beautiful Savior I'm yours forever Jesus Christ my Then came the morning, then came the 
one last thing before we go. Very special couple are having their last service with us, Brent and Leslie. You don't know, but I'm going to ask you to come up onto the stage. They've been serving in our church for many years. And this is the last Sunday. And I just want to send you off with some prayer and encouragement from God's Word. In Exodus 34, uh, 33, verse 14, it says, And He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And it's just a reminder to you too, you've served so faithfully here for many years, and God is taking you somewhere new. He's still with you. He's got a plan and a purpose for you. And our prayer is that He will use you to fulfill that plan and purpose where He takes you. Let's pray. Father, we just lift up Brent and, he, uh, Brent and Leslie um, to you. So grateful, Lord, for their wonderful service here at this church. 